0: This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dave Harrison. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, presented by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at the story
1: of a man called Corporal John Vincent Byrne.
0: So yeah, Corporal John Vincent Burn or Jack Burn, as he was oh, Jack Burn. more commonly known. Uh, really interesting guy, uh, really interesting escape, of course, as they always are. He actually enlisted before the war, so you could kind of right. see it coming, and enlisted for the Gordon Highlanders. Uh, he was not from Scotland, okay. uh, although they are a fine Scottish regiment. i um, <laughs> sure you have no bias in that. <laughs> none at all. And actually, in his book, which is called The General Salutes a Soldier, uh, we will come to the reasoning for the book name I was going to ask, but okay. In In his book, he actually describes why he enlisted with the Gordon Highlanders. So I'm just going to read out an extract from the book. So give me a moment. When the Duke of Gordon formed the Gordon Regiment more than 200 years ago, his beautiful Duchess stood in the marketplace in Aberdeen and greeted each new recruit with a kiss, a golden guinea between her lips causing hundreds of young country lads to flock into the town to join, denuding every farm in the area of its workers. Since that day, the colours of her family have been carried to the fore in every battle. Within an hour of hearing this tradition in February 1939, firmly believing that it was still the custom, I walked into the nearest recruiting office and demanded to join that Gordon Highlanders. <laughs> so he wanted a kiss he wanted a kiss from a beautiful duchess (laughs) which is why despite being from donnington he demanded to join the gordon highlanders and ultimately he did actually (laughs) he got he was accepted uh, by the gordon highlanders and upon appearing for the first day basically the uh, sergeant major asked him why he told him this story about the duchess and asked when he would get his kiss and he was effectively ridiculed because he was one of five who'd all turned up for precisely the same reason (laughs) all <laughs> of whom were completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, so he didn't get his case. Something of an inauspicious start uh, to his service in the Gordon Highlanders <laughs> yeah. but he, he saw the uh, start of the war while serving with them. He actually fought in France during the retreat to Dunkirk with the 51st Highland Division of which of course the Gordon Highlanders were a part. Right, okay. And received an injury, a wound uh, from shrapnel in his right thigh, and was invalided out, which is ultimately how he ended up. Uh, so he was taken back yeah. to the United Kingdom and went on to serve in North Africa, uh, ultimately transferring to the SAS, the Special Air Service, in August 1941, which was, of course, set up by David Sterling, Yes, who, who has featured in the previous episodes. As I say, we've seen him in previous episodes. We have, in the Alistair Cram episodes. He was in Gavi with Alistair yep. and ultimately went on to be a prisoner of war in Colditz. Yes. So although he himself never escaped, he's a bit of a running thing thread through, yes. <laughs> through this podcast and so yes he was actually serving in march 1942 he was on a sabotage mission uh, near benghazi and in his report he only describes it as a sabotage mission but essentially what they were doing was they were going in behind enemy lines across north africa and attacking aerodromes. the idea was that they were basically turning up in the middle of nowhere Mm-hmm. Uh, just appearing out of the desert Yeah. planting bombs on the planes in the aerodrome, setting a timer on them for anywhere from 14 seconds to 2 hours. it's very specific. It could be anywhere in in, uh-huh. in between them. The idea being that if you were caught you could set them off quickly. Yeah. If you were not caught you could sit back and watch the show shall we say. <laughs> and they would, that's basically what they would do is they would uh, go in behind enemy lines and do that and then they were due to go back and rendezvous with a unit to take them back to their base. Yeah. But in the middle of the desert, not always easy to meet that rendezvous.
1: I would Im- I would imagine so, yeah.
0: And he essentially got separated and walking alone through the North African desert for eight days. It's a long time to walk for a desert. It is a bit, yeah, and having been walking through the North African desert, he essentially saw a truck and thought, oh, I'll head towards that. Because he, he basically believed that, you know, eight days walking through the North African desert is no way he's not behind British lines. Yeah. And of course, the front was a bit of a move, moving feast at this time, so yeah. whether he was behind what were previously British lines or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. But basically he was captured by the Germans. Uh, so he just waited for the truck to come up to him and before <laughs> it was too late, a bunch of a troop of Germans kind of jumped out of the truck and captured him. By and large, he says that they treated him pretty well. However, during the interrogation, they show a great deal of interest in his unit. Mm-hmm. So we now know the SAS is this famous uh, yep. regiment that has taken part in you know. Um,
1: it's a pretty intimidating idea, the SAS. Yeah, it's
0: the concept is now fairly familiar with yeah. us but as you say it's quite intimidating but at the time you know it was set up in 1941 so it was it was all brand new. It was a brand new concept it wasn't well known and so the Germans were basically you know every, anytime they caught anyone from the SAS they were desperate to interrogate them. Yeah yeah. So during his interrogation they show a great deal of interest in actually asking them about his unit you know noticing that the special tunic that he, he was wearing you know asking them about his unit but he, was, he of course was only giving name rank in number, yes. which was... Minimum requirement
1: is it me also is it just uh, the idea when you say when someone says the SAS or says the Special Air Service SAS sounds so much more intimidating to me than Special Airs. Uh, there's the idea <coughs> of like this skilled team behind the SAS, but Special Air Service in my head doesn't sound as impressive.
0: No, I know what you mean, but yes, I, I think there's probably an element of its mythology precedes yeah. it, and so you hear SAS and it's like oh my goodness. That's, yeah, like I I knew of the a big AS, deal. <laughs> I knew of
1: the SAS before I strictly knew it was the Special Air Service.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty common of most people who have yeah. just kind of heard of it. And, of course, there are stringent entry requirements. You know, you have to yeah. go through epic levels of training. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So, you know, it, it is a famous regiment mm. for it. We're not unjustified either. <laughs> but, as I say, at this time, it was such a new concept and newly implemented. I mean, even at this point, they'd only had a couple of sabotage missions. Some had gone well, some less well. Yeah, uh, There's a really good book by a guy called Ben McIntyre who wrote about, I think it was called Rogue Warriors, which is all about... The Establishment of the SAS and the okay. Second World War is a really good book that kind of goes into the depth and detail of, of that. And, yeah, you know, Sterling's role in the setup and some of the uh, famous uh, guy called Paddy Main, really famous soldier who served in the SAS and uh, right, yeah, famed th- co- for his hardness but also a little bit of his brutality as well, right? Okay, and yes, it's, it's interesting as you kind of go through his report because he kind of keeps on coming back to the interrogation efforts that are being made, yeah, you know, and they go to some lengths, you know, first of all, they just say they ask about his tunic and that he only gives his name rank and number and they kind of leave him alone but then he come back to him and start buttering him up with it says an italian officer purporting to be an italian parachutist but speaking good english took me to a house gave me cigarettes gave me food and asked me to tell him about the operation that i've been on prior to my capture as i said taking to a house food cigarettes all this sort of stuff so just starting to butter him up speaking yeah. english when maybe being left alone for a couple of days it's starting to feel a bit familiar there's clearly a concerted effort to find out more about this unit of which they knew so little and to be honest with a sabotage mission you're as likely to be killed <laughs> as, yes, yes. as captured <laughs> and so that you know that if you captured an SAS soldier you, you've got the precious prize yeah um, you know that's it's your opportunity to find out more if you can and you know that kind of is reinforced by the fact that they actually put a suspected stool pigeon into his cell and they're you know they're really throwing everything at burn to try and learn more about the SAS and it, it, it's actually quite interesting how he kind of calls him out because the fellow prisoner in his cell when the suspected stool pigeon goes out for a moment says nudge nudge wink wink I think this guy's a stool pigeon Yeah. and so when when he's eventually left alone with the suspected stool pigeon he actually explicitly kind of says oh and of course we've been trained to look out for these stool pigeons at which point (laughs) the suspect instantly leaves the cell and is never seen or heard from again so (laughs) might have hit the nail on the head might have done yeah yeah exactly (laughs) although he, he also says that he pulled out a hacksaw blade, not to directly threaten them, but just to <laughs> kind of indicate that perhaps he wouldn't be someone you'd want to daub in. Yeah. Shall we say?
1: I was going to say I want to mess with. But. Yeah, well, yeah,
0: sure. Which, actually, to be fair, given that he was a corporal in the SAS, he might have actually had a point. Yeah. Uh, that's not someone I'd usually want to mess no, around not with. Not at all. However, an episode that his book does record, but the escape report doesn't, is actually he took a fairly hefty beating while in captivity by right. the, by the Italians. So he had somehow managed to keep hold of his army knife. Oh, okay, okay. And through interrogation, through searching, all this sort of <laughs> it's stuff. It's impressive
1: to keep hold of that the whole time. Yeah, yeah.
0: And he was eventually found in his cell and they thought he was gonna attack somebody yeah, or something. Like, yeah. So no they, they basically thought that you know if he's kept, kept hold of his knife he's gonna go on some sort of rampage yeah. within the prison camp. And in an effort to try and get him to confess to this, they essentially beat the living dare out of them. Not the
1: best way to get a confession out of someone like that, I imagine.
0: Well, no, there's there's a long and well-established history of using torture and physical beatings to try and get confessions out of them, it's just they're generally accepted to not be particularly reliable. Yeah, more true. Um, so yeah, so he, d- he doesn't actually go into that much detail about the beating in his report, but in essence he was not too devastated when he was handed back to the Germans. Right. <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. So, yeah, the Germans basically took him back across the Mediterranean, took him to greece and took him up by train through occupied europe yeah. to a german camp but there's actually quite an entertaining episode while he was in greece whereby while they were sitting on the train the guards who he actually describes as being quite friendly in the book you know he kind of talks about how they were going home on leave from the north african campaign so they were in the africa corps right and they were going home on leave and basically you know they were just kind of told to keep an eye on this guy on the way home so they were yeah. actually in really good mood oh, okay and yeah. were happily sharing bread and food right and drink with him and kept a close eye on them. He does say that, you know, their, their rifle and what have you was permanently they cocked and ready to go, but they they were by and large kind of fairly friendly with them.
1: It was their last task before they got to go home and have it, a break. It, so. it,
0: exactly, but perhaps because of that, they let their guard down a little bit. Not with him, but he actually says that while they were on the train in Greece, they stopped off at a station and all these Greek children kind of came up and were trying to barter with them for cigarettes and and, you know, food and trinkets and okay, souvenirs right, right, and this yeah. sort of stuff and both the German guards swapped a loaf of bread for a carton of cigarettes a big long carton of cigarettes and delighted with their purchase uh, uh, a little bit further down the line as once they pulled out of the station they decide to have a celebratory cigarette and pull open the carton that's it's stuffed full of newspaper <laughs> and uh, apparently we're not best pleased no. <laughs> um, I bet
1: those kids loved it though <laughs> yeah well they disappeared
0: off and they scarpered pretty quickly. but in, Interesting Interestingly, actually, although he doesn't talk about the beating that he took, he does actually say that upon arriving at Dulag Luft, which is the transit camp, Before going on into the main prison camp system I was immediately taken to the hospital So he does actually kind of inadvertently Refer back to the beating he took And also suggests how badly hurt he was The fact that he had to go straight into the hospital As soon as he got there Mm. And he was there for quite a while actually But while there they essentially tried to uh, Produce the standard Red Cross form that we keep hearing So much about where they try to Did it ever work? I don't know, I can't (laughs) imagine it ever did You know, name, rank, number, station what you flew uh, or what what regiment you were in, all this sort of stuff, you know, your hometown. It seems that they always ask this question and no one filled it in. You know, he does openly say, I only filled in the relevant parts, but then he does actually go on to say, you know, so maybe he did believe there was at least an element of Red Cross. This was actually a Red Cross form because he said, I filled in the complaint paragraphs. (laughs) So he's clearly kind of linking that back to the beating that he took earlier, which I thought was actually fair enough. But he
1: still wouldn't give him his squadron or or anything like that that, would he?
0: No, 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 not at all. Well, you don't need to. You um, no. weren't required to. And just to kind of reiterate just how important an interrogation to an SA, a captured SAS soldier was to the Germans. They actually try again once he's in hospital. <laughs> yeah. And he says, then a German officer who spoke English came into my room, gave me a cigarette and took me to another room where he asked me some general questions about my civilian life. All perfectly nice and civil. Yes. He then said that though he did not want any real military information from me, he would like to know the name of my unit, the nature of the operation upon which I'd been engaged prior to capture and in the course of his subsequent conversation he asked me whether I knew of an attempt to make sea landing at Tripoli, what squadron had invaded Rommel's HQ, whether there were glider planes in the Middle East, whether I was a regular soldier, where I'd been performing my training and what I and my friends had thought about the course of the war, which for someone who doesn't want any real military information <laughs> from him sounds suspiciously like military intelligence gathering. It's, it's such a weird thing isn't it, it's like oh, don't worry, we
1: can just chat, you don't have to talk about anything to do of the military but um Who's your squadron? Um, Where were you trained? Yeah, were you trained?
0: Um, You were trained here, right? Yeah? No, it's such a weird technique. Seems very (laughs) odd, but it does clearly show just how much interest the SAS was to German intelligence. Um, I mean, they're really throwing it at them. And again, you know, he says the next morning, another officer of quite a different type (laughs) took me into the room where I had my previous interview. He was very friendly and confidential, insisted that he did not really want me to give him any military information, but he required some information about my next of kin. It's quite black blackadder esque this interrogation <laughs> technique. You know, Corporal Jack Byrne uh, did not eat this delicious plump-breasted pigeon. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is, I mean, it's quite ridiculous. It's not exactly the most advanced interrogation technique that they're deploying. But I suppose within those limited means, they're really throwing everything at them.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess it's one of those, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. one of them gets the information.
0: Having then been in Doolag Glove 2, was actually transferred to Style Glove 3 of multiple fame. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've covered Star Wars 3 quite extensively. Yeah, somewhere we visited a couple of times. Once or twice with Codner, Williams, uh, Philpott and yeah. Sandy Gunn. And Sandy Gunn. Uh, all from the first series. And so, yeah, he spent some time there. And actually, I found his description of the camp quite interesting for a number of reasons. Not least of which is because he's kind of an outsider looking in. Yeah. We kind of, when talking about certainly Gunn, you know, there was a description of his experience within the Great Escape experience. Yeah. And equally, Codner, Williams and Philpott their experience within the wooden horse but because he wasn't really involved in any of these it's quite interesting listening to him or reading about what burn's discussion and description of style with three was so he was only there for about five six months or so he doesn't go into too much detail about the camp itself but there are one or two kind of snippets that he throws in so for example he describes how there were many individual tunnel schemes which you know in hindsight is <laughs> some, <laughs> something <laughs> we know about yeah <laughs> seems a fairly obvious statement but i suppose <laughs> at the time you know this was brand new information <laughs> yeah and yeah
1: i guess he can't see them in the same historical relevance that we can now but on, on escapes because he just saw lots of people doing lots of different activities there
0: yeah exactly and what one point i did find quite interesting was he actually describes the transfer of the american prisoners of war into a new compound because uh, they actually split them off which is actually quite a major moment in the story of the great escape is when the americans are taken yeah away and is actually you know from a purely historical point of view is one of actually the key criticisms of the film itself is that there was not a single American who took part in The Great Escape right. <laughs> however in, from the perspective of the event itself uh, they've been so heavily involved in the preparation and the digging and you know the making of all the equipment and just generally involved in The Great Escape that when the American, you know, that's one of the reasons why they uh, pushed ahead with one tunnel instead of pursuing all three was to try and break the first tunnel at this point it was Tom before the Americans were taken to a new compound <laughs> they were actually attempting it and ultimately Tom was discovered yeah. underneath the stove I think it was but yeah he, and it's, it's just interesting the way he describes this as just an event that yeah, took it's place just something that happened, yeah. because at the time of writing this report it was just oh I, I saw you know the 600 strong American prisoners of war being taken off to another compound <laughs> whereas previously they'd been integrated in with the uh, rest of the allied prisoners of war and it's just I, I just quite enjoyed seeing it from fresh eyes from another perspective even though it's it's part of the wider narrative of Star 3.
1: It's like almost he's a a bit player or a bit character within the larger story of The Great Escape and if it was like a movie he'd just be in the background somewhere. Yeah, no, exactly. You just kind of see his
0: point of view come through. Exactly. But ultimately he is moved to Shubin, O-Flag 21B and actually his reasoning for this was quite interesting as well because we have discussed before uh, within the context of Geneva Convention officers were not required to do any Mm work but the other ranks were. Yes and in essence he volunteered to be an officer's servant the theory being that because you were allowed to go out and work escaping from an other ranks camp was theoretically easier because you were allowed out of the camp yeah well, quite yeah. literally you know, it was the whole point was you were taken outside of the camp right and th- there is some truth to this that, that is borne out by the statistics and that there were actually more non-officers that escaped than officers that escaped i see Des- despite the general perception is that the, the majority of escapers were officers a person I I think that's because it was the officer class who went on and wrote the books after the war i mean that's very possible and basically created what we now know as the escape narrative yeah. so it's always perceived to be officers, the officers. who escaped mm-hmm. but in actual fact statistically speaking there were far more non-ncos and other ranks that succeeded in escaping than actual officers
1: right i did because that that was a question i was going to ask because i did wonder why he would i thought maybe it was just to make his life easier to volunteer to be an officer servant there but that actually makes more makes a lot of sense
0: yeah i mean it mean, he does kind of acknowledge that you know he asked to be transferred to another camp in the hope that it would be easier to escape yeah but certainly being an officer's servant i would imagine was an easier life than say manual labor yeah working in a field in a farm that sort of thing so yeah it seems to have been a fairly tactical move that he's gone for here and he actually made a couple of escape efforts from this camp and so his first escape effort was almost laughably bad (laughs) i mean poor guy but it wasn't the finest effort you will ever read uh, about whereby essentially you know he made some preparations he went to the escape committee and ran it by them and you know said to them like when we're taking out the german guard that takes us you know wheels his bicycle along and props up against the shed uh, next to which we work and essentially i just want to make a mad dash whenever he's gone for his cup of coffee (laughs) nick his bike and uh, go for it we've had these discussions
1: before with previous escapes and and a a simple method like that is it's a man after my own heart yeah I, i love these little grab dash just Oh, quick, uh, grab it, run. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's brilliant.
0: And so, yeah, I mean, he does make some preparations. He says that he collected a quantity of chocolate, raisins, cheese and cigarettes from the Red Cross. And then he had converted blankets into a civilian cap and procured a map and compass from the escape committee. You know, he does say, as I cannot speak German, I did not provide myself with any identity card or house vice. I thought it was quite brave to go without papers. I, I,
1: I thought that as well, because even if you can't speak German, so therefore you wouldn't be able to be questioned, surely there's quiet Germans who just want to show their paper and just move on.
0: Surely he could have kind of worked out if you've know, if you got a German policeman or yeah. a train guard or something saying Papier to you. They're probably asking you for your papers.
1: And also, surely at that point, there will be other people showing papers as well.
0: Yeah, you'd think so. So, so there
1: should be some context clues as to what you need to show.
0: Yes, exactly. And so... As I say, i thought I thought it was quite brave of them to go without paper yeah, and definitely. by brave, perhaps foolhardy too. but yeah. Uh, we'll run with Brave since he was in the SAS and I wouldn't argue with him. <laughs> so yes, I mean, essentially what he does is he goes out, the guard leaves the, the bike bike next to the shed and he waits until he goes into inside the shed and just grabs the bike and makes a dash for it. However, he, in hindsight, he kind of he does actually kind of say that possibly should have waited a couple of days until he was kind of used to my face and yeah. wasn't kind of on quite such a tight leash by the guard. Because yeah. the guard basically instantly noticed him and and He essentially says I hope that he didn't have access to a phone because he didn't have to run back to the camp Yeah, and although we've described it as a shed it was kind of next to a farmhouse So the description in the book gives a bit more detail on this So he clearly just ran to the farmhouse and called the police in the local <laughs> town Because effectively he gets about a quarter of a mile down the road on this bike and is rugby Tackled <laughs> by the local policeman <laughs> in the middle of the street as in the bike was mangled Yeah, utterly unusable after that was taken in custody by the policeman and returned to the guard and in actual fact if I remember correctly he essentially it was so embarrassing for everyone involved that it was never reported (laughs) (laughs) because for Byrne he just looked ridiculous that he got a quarter of a mile down the road while the guard didn't want to admit that his bicycle had been nicked by one of the prisoners but despite that he actually managed to hold on to his compass which I thought was pretty good so that was that was his first escape attempt so he did ultimately decide to make a second attempt from uh Shubin here and and although he managed to pull together a bit more of an extensive escape kit I did feel his kind of decisions on the escape kit was reflective of his skills and personality and so he, he says that he sought permission to make his second escape attempt and it was approved uh readily so he was given some uh, food maps of the route from Schubin to Danzig and from Schubin to Warsaw and he was also offered money but as I cannot speak German I declined it for the same reason I did not attempt to provide myself with any form of identity card again so yeah he's, he's tailoring his escape kit to his own skills yes yeah. he's to some extent he perhaps deserves credit for kind of acknowledging that his german wasn't up to scratch and therefore that wasn't the type of escape he was going to pursue you know we've discussed about the wide range of forms of escape in many ways they're all kind of similar but at the same time there's they're all so different as well because, yeah. you know some people go by foot by train by bike
1: yeah i see what you mean you get the feeling very much from his planning that he's planning to be nowhere near people yes exactly he's not planning to make any contact at no
0: all. none at all and uh, as limited contact as possible yeah. as you can possibly manage um, which in some ways perhaps why a bike is smart because it's perfectly natural to cycle around the yeah. local countryside it's faster than walking Definitely. not as fast as a train but faster than walking but equally you're not going so slowly that someone will stop and chat to you or stop you yeah particularly i mean you might get stopped at the, uh, a road block or something like that or by a traffic jam but other than that you're yeah. not really in a situation whereby you're being stopped
1: Sure. Yeah. There's no
0: chance anyone's
1: going to just stop you on the street to say hello or whatever. Exactly. Which, or, is, which is possible when you're walking.
0: Yes. Exactly. And so, I think his punishment for stealing a bike was, that, in its way, quite a smart one. Although, interestingly, he does say that despite the fact that he's not clearly making no effort to kind of interact with people, he does go on to say that he carried a compass, stole my food at chocolate, a razor and soap. Yes. Which, in previous episodes, that's only ever really cropped up by those who were planning to travel as businessmen, yeah. you know, assimilating to the local population, going by train usually, rather than by foot or uh, by bike in this case. And so, I was, I was actually quite impressed that he kind of made that additional effort. Well,
1: there are, recur- I'm sure you'll or sure we'll get on to them As we pass through But there are several occasions Which impressed me Where that He was in situations Where he wouldn't be Anywhere near people Yet he's still taking the time To shave and Well standards must be mean To wash, Yeah but I mean <laughs> I'm sure one of them is like In the middle of a field Or something And he just has a wash And a shave Yeah
0: No no exactly Yeah he kind of goes to A pond in the corner of a field Yeah and just, just has a shave, because, you know, as I say, standards must be maintained. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that you know, the the escape this time isn't wholly dissimilar. And, you know, certainly NCOs having to work gave them greater escape opportunities than officers. You know, they were going out and about. Yeah. And so on this occasion, he was uh, actually assigned to work inside a garage. Yeah. And he essentially just kind of hid in the corner when they were locking up at the end of the day and climbed <laughs> out a window. And would you believe it? He found a bicycle. This um, man loves his bicycles. He
1: really does. Sorry, he loves other people's bicycles
0: exactly exactly he's uh quite light fingered with the uh, <laughs> with the bikes and so yeah he starts basically starts cycling towards warsaw on on his way he had a bit of an incident which i can't imagine helped him much whereby he kind of stopped by a canal in the hope of finding a boat to kind of take him and his bike across the canal and this was at night time, and he basically fell in the canal while trying to find the canal so i think he found it but was perhaps a little over familiar with the canal itself it's a bit smooth yeah exactly and so in essence he had to go back to the wood in which he'd been hiding and try to dry his clothes which i can't imagine was particularly helpful, and in actual fact, he says by now my feet. Uh, this is the next morning. Uh, my feet had begun to swell, and in order to wear my boots, I had to take off my socks.
1: That's a rough situation.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so he decides to essentially just jump a train, which was heading towards Austria. He's essentially having to jump onto a cargo wagon, precisely because he hasn't got the papers to travel. Yeah. On so in some ways he has shot himself in the foot slightly by not having the papers. You know, by falling in the canal, he's kind of he shot himself in his big swollen feet. Yeah, exactly. You know he's. Had having to reconsider his options and yeah. try a different route. But because he hasn't arranged papers for himself, he's not actually able to travel yeah. by a normal passenger train. He's got train. limited options. Yeah. He ultimately says, my feet were now in a very bad state and I could not run, which perhaps might explain why he was captured. Um, yeah. You know, when he was kind of accosted by German railwaymen, not being able to speak German and not being able to leg it. It doesn't leave you too many options. No, no, exactly. And actually, fact, that he was sent back to Stadel Three again <laughs> back at the scene of the crime as they say yep where again somehow he manages to retain his compass so he lost the maps and food but managed to retain his compass but again he, he doesn't stay there particularly long isn't particularly involved in any of the more famous attempts uh, yeah while, while they are in fact from what i can tell he spent most of his time in, st- in his second stint in style of three in solitary confinement right inside the cooler so yeah ultimately towards the end of june 1943 he is transferred from style of three to style of six uh, so doubling his luck. um <laughs> <laughs> which is sorry that really got me <laughs> yeah. up until now he'd actually been in the style Luft camp which mm-hmm. of course Luft was air yes he was actually held in what was in effect the RAF camps right Okay. even yeah. though he was in the army yeah And so he did actually keep on requesting to be transferred to an army camp and it was repeatedly refused but he yeah he, so he ultimately left in June July 1943 which just for the purposes of context really is about eight or nine months before the great escape took, Okay. Like, Right. So it was ongoing at this time, but as I say, you kind of dipped in and out. Yeah. Of course, you know it is important to remember that the vast majority of these camps weren't involved in escapes, uh, despite the perception that's generally given. The vast majority of the camp population were not involved in escapes, yeah. and so it's not particularly odd or uncommon for him to have passed through, start and just a not be any part of it. N- No part or very little, if at all.
1: What was what was the figures we've mentioned before? Was it five to fifteen percent?
0: Yeah, roughly speaking. So the there was roughly around about ten percent were involved, of which ten percent of escapes were successful. Right, okay. Which gives you round about one percent of the prison population actually escaped successfully. Okay. Yeah. Which is quite a small yeah. Very know, small, yeah. Percentage so that were actually successful at all. So on his way to Stahlgluff Six, which was at Heidekrug, he was held in Königsberg, which was a transit camp. Königsberg was historically in the prussian part of germany okay but is now kaliningrad in russia right so it is the exclave i think it's called which is where a section of the country is completely separate from the main body of russia so the right i think it's essentially survived as part of the russian federation from what became occupied ussr and just kind of stayed part of russia even though it was part of what was originally prussian part of germany yeah it was heavily bombed under Red Army advance. So nowadays, very little of the ancient city still exists, but uh, it's on the Baltic Sea, okay. And as I say, is now known as Kaliningrad in Russia. Mm, so, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, locating us geographically, at least, and a little bit of history too. Oh. So yeah, he was in the transit camp. But he was placed in a transit camp on the sixteenth of July, nineteen forty-three, in Königsberg. He essentially just kind of took a look around, scouted out the camp pretty quickly, and realized that this was definitely escapable. Yeah, a thin wire fence around. It and,
1: and and he's he's not very outnumbered by the guards is he or
0: no not really it seems to be about three to one or something like that sorry there was six yeah yeah, yeah. there was there was six uh prisoners and three guards so actually they outnumbered the guards I, two exactly. to one well that in and, in and of itself wasn't particularly uncommon most camps would have maybe hundreds of prisoners yeah and maybe a hundred guards but of course the guards were armed
1: armed, um, and in a more sort of secure location exactly yeah. and
0: surrounded by civilians who were on their side and yeah <laughs> <laughs> what have you and even just the basic you know police setup. what of course was a police state and so as soon as they arrived they kind of got chatting to some of the frenchmen <sighs> that were held in the camp and decided to escape as soon as they could so they managed to get hold of 10 reichmarks and 100 french francs in exchange for lagergeld so lagergeld is literally camp gold right. uh, so it's the for one the better description it is the monopoly money that they used within the prisoner war camp system in order to allow them to purchase things without actually having to give them Reich marks
1: right okay, okay so
0: it wasn't legal tender but it kind of represented a form of money so that if they wanted to say they wanted to purchase a piano for the theater which w- happened <laughs> uh the, um, there's a rather entertaining story in coldups whereby they did actually purchase a piano for the theater for <laughs> for the plays they got the local workmen to hump up three <laughs> three flights of stairs promptly nicked all of his tools and ha- then had to get him to take it back down again because he w- they wouldn't return the tools. Oh, no. Um, so, But that is essentially what Lagergeld was. It was a form of fake money to represent the opportunity for prisoners to purchase additional equipment, Okay, legitimate equipment in the eyes of the Germans. So, as I say, things like musical instruments for to create an orchestra mm-hmm. or uh, to provide music for the cat theatre or books as well you know that sort of thing so is this i
1: mean i'm sure we've already discussed this by this point but so is this money that the prisoners themselves had or is this like from
0: so it was how do they they earn it i don't understand it had an exchange rate which because they were paid by the british army right so there was an exchange rate whereby it represented their earnings by being uh, okay. still active soldiers. Which, yep. okay, they weren't on the front, but they weren't dead. So yeah, yeah. Um, they were still employed by the British Army and therefore paid by them. That money was deposited with the Red Cross, essentially. And, and so they essentially exchanged some of their geld for real money, uh, right. Reichmarks and French francs. And so, in essence, and, and you know, I said he scouted out the camp fairly quickly and he basically spotted that a neighbouring compound was occupied by Russian prisoners of war. Right, The Russian... The Russians had not signed the Geneva Convention. Okay. And therefore their prisoners of war were not well treated. Right. But it also kind of meant that there was not a lot of security around their compounds usually because there wasn't... A, they generally speaking didn't have the energy or physical capability to escape. Right, yeah. And B, then had thousands of miles to <laughs> clear out. Yeah. To get to it. And in actual fact, I could add a C, which was that once they got back, they were... Uh, under the communist regime, they were treated as traitors for having had the temerity to be captured. They should have died in service of the motherland. I see, okay. Here. And so, having survived capture, got and back, escape. and escaped, they were then promptly shot or sent to a gulag for <laughs> uh, being traitors to the motherland for God. having uh, survived long enough and not died in the service. Um,
1: yeah, if I was in that situation, they'd probably just stay put.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So, there wasn't a great deal of security. Including between the camp that Byrne was in and the compound that the prisoners were in. So he, he actually just crawls through the latrine drain to the russian compound and then breaks the wire that's surrounding them because it was so old and rusty that it was breakable and just walks out onto the road on the other side of the compound wire he says (laughs) the entire operation took about five minutes
1: (laughs) i mean simple doesn't sound very pleasant though
0: no no but then
1: but he's probably been through worse at this point
0: yeah i would imagine (laughs) so and actually had to kill time to kind of avoid being spotted and what have you to um, effectively wait for the dark he actually hides in the bin (laughs) Uh, He finds a large rusty bin next to the road and hides in it. Fantastic. And then once it's dark, he heads towards Königsberg. At first, I kind of wondered why he didn't try and stow away on a ship from the docks at Königsberg. Why did he have to go all the way to Danzig? But he essentially meets one of the French workers that were in Königsberg working, essentially slave labour. Yeah. The Frenchman basically says that it's just local coal boats that are just scuttling around the the harbour and that he wouldn't really get very far at all, uh, which kind of forced him to Sort of rethink his... Yeah, rethink his plans plans. and go via Danzig, ultimately. So, although he he got some, well, not unhelpful intelligence, but... They did at least kind of give him a bit more money, but, you know, it says uh, 50 rice marks and 150 francs. By this point, he's pretty loaded, I was going to say, he hasn't spent a lot of this money. No, and nor does he particularly intend to. <laughs> and furthermore, they even offered to take him down to the train loading area and just kind of seal him into a wagon and send him on his way. The only problem with that was there was actually no guarantee of where in Germany, Austria, France, or even Turkey that he might end up. <laughs> they were literally just going to put him into a wagon. Byrne effectively decided again
1: that. Yeah, I mean you don't really want to be playing guess the mystery location when you get out the other side.
0: Yeah, exactly. Trying to work out which language he didn't speak. Yeah. So instead he basically asked them to provide him with some civilian clothing and they give him some blue overalls, which covers up his uniform which is handy. Yep. Barry fitting in with the Frenchman. Brilliantly. Of course. Well done. Some food and of course more money. But he actually says that I refused it, presumably because he is now making it rain in Königsberg. Yeah. So in the actual fact he had enough money that he'd stitched it into his trousers. So yeah, he heads on his way and he says on oh, the next morning after my helpers had gone to work I walked into the town finding a bicycle inside a gateway I stole it and rode off now, I did not see that coming if I'm honest but this man loves his bicycles he loves stealing his bicycles He's uh, what a great man
1: <laughs> I feel sorry for the, the, the sort of chain of people he's left behind you come outside to ride their bicycle and then find the gap empty where once stood their two wheeled beast that they love so much <laughs> yes exactly
0: <laughs> an interesting little detail actually mentions is that my map showed the danzig area up to the town of elbing and so i noticed a number of signposts marked elbing leading from the town and followed them along the coast although you know the scale of the map that he had didn't necessarily show the direct route from where he was he was able to at least kind of head in that general direction because of the information he did have which actually shows how important having the map is which may seem really obvious but when you're in an occupied country that you don't really know having a map on you which you know would have been strictly verboten is the difference between success and failure yeah here. definitely because um, it, it
1: gave him a goal which he could then realize in real life by the signposts and yeah no, just, it, yeah
0: exactly and having of course stolen a, a bike for a change uh, there was you know it's quite an interesting little episode whereby you know he's cycling along and he notices a roadblock up ahead uh which were examining passes which um, of course he didn't have of with him he did not have so essentially he waits until a lorry overtakes him is stopped he then goes around the lorry on his bike and just cycles past the roadblock. <laughs> because the, basically it's the lorry that's blocked, so he just kind yeah. of you know, rings his bell and cycles on as if it's perfectly normal and that he's known them and sees them every morning. And, yeah,
1: and they just... Uh, mm.
0: Acts perfectly. Which actually I thought was quite a good way of it's, getting around yeah, yeah. it. However, he is ultimately foiled in his use of the bike because he gets a puncture, which some might say is karma. Yeah. But of course, this is the hero of our story, so we're, <laughs> we're going to be absolutely devastated by this. However, he was close enough to Dan's again anyway that he you know he wasn't far and was able to walk close enough along the path next to a railway line and made it into Dantzig by the 21st of July which is only 4 days after he's escaped yeah. actually so he's making pretty good progress I'm sorry can i
1: just go back to one one of the ways he words this and yes, this is please do. this is just goes on about uh, about his attitude of it it's when talking about the puncture i hid my bicycle under a
0: hedge yes yes it's his bicycle yes the, that would be the royal my bicycle he's got <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite an interesting con, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law so they say, or, yes. or in his case ten-tenths <laughs> of the law i mean if, if it's his it's his yeah um if he's holding it it is it is burned absolutely and actually i also quite like the way he he sneaks into the you know having arrived in danzig which of course was a, a major shipping port yeah going to places like neutral spain mm-hmm. you would generally think that such a major dock would have high security you would assume so yeah and it did however what he basically does is he just mingles into a big group of dockyard workers who were generally just flashing their pass and he, he kind of just pulls out a pile of papers and just, <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah exactly and just kind of waves it in front of a <laughs> a guard's
1: face and just walks on waves was in front of a guard who just does nothing but stare at people waving papers all
0: day at him yeah pretty much and just kind of well they just kind of assume that he was part of the group so yeah. they just waved him through so yeah he mingles in the crowd and acts as if he's a sailor heading towards a ship and it was all perfectly natural and yeah he, as I say he just walks up to a ship and boards it
1: a lot of his methods and I like this about him just seems to be confidence
0: yes yeah no, exactly just
1: ring your bell on your bike past the blockade show up his paper in front of a guard, just walk onto the boat yeah no questions asked it's just guts and i like that about him
0: (laughs) yes but then equally you know once he so he finds a you know a nice hiding spot in the boiler room yeah for him to sort of wait out and stow away on on this swedish ship however the only problem was he hadn't made a great deal of effort to actually find out when the next ship would be sailing And so he ends up actually hiding in the boiler room for three days. Oh, gosh. Um, from the 21st to the 24th of July. Which, apart from anything else, you know, how did he eat? Or, or drink? Yeah. Because
1: although it's a boiler room, drinkable water has got to be scarce there.
0: Yeah, I mean, he actually says the only food I had was a pound of chocolate and I had no water. No, I like chocolate. Yeah. I'm not sure that I want that to be my only sustenance for three days. No.
1: Um, And a boiler room is probably not the coolest place in the world, so you're probably losing a lot of
0: water as well. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, he does also hide in the coal bunker, which is hardly a huge improvement. No, Although it does have one advantage, which he, he, again, doesn't mention in this report, but he does say in the book, which was that by virtue of being down a metal ladder, Mm -hmm. they weren't able to take the Alsatians in. Right. And so he wasn't sniffed out. And he actually, you know, he acknowledges that he was saved by the fact that the Alsatians weren't able to go down the metal staircase into the boiler room itself. It's quite amusing because, you know, when they come into the boiler room, the the guardsman who has a torch actually kind of checks underneath the boilers and what have you to kind of look for any stowaways and he says that he literally just jumps up and grabs a a pole that's hanging above him so that his feet aren't seen (laughs) underneath the the boiler because obviously he's just standing there so he literally just jumps up and holds on and isn't caught. That's fantastic. Which is just pure dumb luck, really. (laughs) And so, having got through that check with such a brilliant hiding (laughs) place, he he basically actually just goes and surrenders to the captain once they're kind of out into open water. So, you know, he first speaks to one of the sailors and then they take him to the captain. He says, you know, when the captain saw me, he asked me to prove that I was British. I then handed him my British Army identity discs, which I'd managed to retain in person since my capture in Africa. The captain congratulated me and said, you ought to be in Britain within a week. And I actually kind of wanted to just quickly pick up on the importance of the ID discs actually because they're they're important if you were captured as a prisoner of war because you had to be able to prove you were a prisoner of war, otherwise you were a spy. Yes. I also find it interesting that he also has to prove it to the neutral to prove that he is To prove that he's not A, a stool pigeon You yeah. might say You know a German Trying to find captains Who might be helping out And what have you Because it wasn't unknown For them to do that actually
1: Yeah it's almost like You have to have them To prove that you're not A spy one way But also that you're not A spy the
0: other way as well Yeah no it, <laughs> Exactly I'd always mentally Acknowledge the point About having to prove That you were a prisoner of war To the Germans If you were yeah. captured Never really thought about it The other way So I thought it was Quite an interesting little yeah, detail That he picked it's up it's actually on. very good Very true But having, having spent three days in the boiler and coal bunker. It says here that he got scrubbed down. In actual fact, he had to be washed about five times to get all the grime off him. Which is kind of hinted at when he says, my old clothes were thrown overboard and with them the the money. However, (laughs) he retained his maps. He's still got those maps. He's still got those maps, which is good. That's what you need.
1: I do like the fact that his clothes were so just gone, they just threw them overboard.
0: But yeah, I mean, he must have been in a a bit of a mess because he says it was taken to a hospital to be disinfected. (laughs) I mean, how bad a state was he in? (laughs) You know, that upon arrival in Gothenburg and then from there he was uh, sent on to Stockholm that night. So, you know, he's now arrived in neutral Sweden on 25th of July. So, what, a week after he escaped on the 17th? That's so eight days. That's pretty good going. Yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah. So, you know, given that it wasn't by train, which is usually the quick route, Yeah. You know, sometimes just a couple of days. Equally, it wasn't by foot, so <laughs> no. nor did he go down to Gibraltar, which is often the, the yep. long way around, shall we say. Uh, so, no, he managed to get across and, as I say, he got to neutral Sweden within a week which is pretty rapid Uh, and he spent a couple of weeks in Stockholm and ultimately returned to Lukers in Fife was flown back which was a fairly common route actually yeah it's part of the reason why they would spend a couple of weeks in Stockholm was it took time to prepare
1: but that's still not as long as some of the um, routes we've had even when people are not at all safe you know Sometimes, as we've been, as we've said in the past, it takes a very long time to get home. No, exactly. The fact Quite- that he was only in Stockholm for a few weeks before he flew back is actually, again, very impressive.
0: No, ex- exactly. And you know, if, if you reached. Say Switzerland, for example. Yeah. Quite often you were kept in Switzerland for several months. Yeah. Before then being sent onward on an evasion line. Yes. In, you know, towards Gibraltar, which again could take several months. Yeah. Uh, to reach there. So, although that is the story of his escape, he actually had quite an interesting post escape career as well, oh, cool. which I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and cover a bit. Yeah, definitely. So, having, you know, we talked about his beatings earlier, he actually suffered quite a bit during captivity and was so emaciated upon his return that he was absolutely actually sent back to barracks and for basic training for six months really purely to recover Wow. Purely to recover you know, to gain some weight, to actually build up a fighting fitness again. Yeah. You know, as much as the SAS have a very high standard of fitness requirement to be a member. Yeah. He was just destroyed. I yeah. mean, so it was, it took him those six months to actually get back up to the standard required of him. You know, he was actually asked to stay on as an instructor, but he knew he wouldn't see active service again if he accepted that. And so he turned it down and, and in the end, he was part of the first wave onto Sword Beach on D-Day. Wow. And went on to fight in the Netherlands as part of Market Garden. Ultimately he reached Osnabruck on the fourth of April. You know, finished the war by securing a vital bridge over the river Elba. There. So that that was his post escape career. But I, I, mean, I said I would touch upon one last point, which is the name of his book, which as I said. Uh, yes. As I said earlier, the general salutes a soldier. Yes. So during his six months recovery, mm-hmm. He was asked to take part in, I suppose, a motivational scheme they might call it. Uh, It was also partly fundraising scheme, right? Which was called the salute the soldier. Mm -hmm. It was essentially people who had been out fighting, or in his case, had been captured, the prisoner of war, and had returned home, and they were tasked with giving motivational speeches to large crowds. Okay, and then off the back of that, they were then selling war bonds, which was a fundraising exercise by the government. And so he was taken to Trafalgar square and addressed an audience of thousands and kind of told them his story and then at the end of it the general salutes him right the idea being that you know it's just a, a normal soldier who's been recognized for yeah. his service by a senior general and so the title of his book is the general salutes a soldier ah, very and interesting. that was part of his six month recovery was that he was involved in that and he was the soldier that the general saluted ah, in cool. trafalgar square very interesting so yeah that was all part of his wartime service so having fought in, as part of the British Expeditionary Force had been part of the 51st Highland Division protecting Dunkirk he was invalided back to the UK fought in North Africa was captured he escaped the Germans got back via neutral Sweden went on to fight in D-Day Operation Market Garden crossed the Rhine and eventually finished the war in the middle of Germany
1: this man liked to like to fight for his country didn't he? <laughs> he really
0: did and you know do you know what fair play You know that that is a spectacular service record yeah, it's, it's amazing. very impressive and a very impressive escape too I thought okay um well thank
1: you everybody for listening to this week's episode we hope you've enjoyed it if you have please consider subscribing to the podcast we could be found on apple itunes google podcasts or basically any of your favorite podcast platforms
0: or you can follow us on twitter on at fytwio.
1: if you'd like to send us a more long-form message then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com thank you very much for listening
0: thank you back.